Our topic at hand tonight is the crucifixion of Jesus, the suffering of our Savior. And we have two passages, Luke chapter 23, can be found on your pew Bibles on page 1641. Uh, Luke 23 is the description in the Gospel of Luke concerning Christ's suffering on the cross. Hear now the reading of God's word, starting in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's the description of the historical event of the crucifixion. But we have another passage this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,799. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. This is a theological implication of Christ's work on the cross. Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to his people. We're going to be looking at Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15. It can be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 15. Not page 15, page 22. Lord's Day 15, page 22. And we can read the answers together with one voice. What do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that, 
by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by a civil judge, and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, this death convinces me that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. That's the teaching of the catechism. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, enlighten us by your spirit that we may come to see, to understand, and to know how much Christ suffered in order to give us salvation. And by seeing how much our dear Savior suffered, we may come to know him and to love him Adore him and live for him all the more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There for a while, when I was in college, I, um, I was a substitute teacher. And the substitute teacher has the lovely job of being the teacher in the place of the normal teacher. And if you have any experience with school, then you know that substitute teacher also stands for how many things can I get by this guy. Being the substitute teacher is not always fun, but the idea of substitute is there to... Help us think about what we're talking about tonight and the suffering of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Maybe if you can't understand it in terms of a substitute teacher, uh, you could be helped by thinking of another situation, another circumstance like that. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the concept of a whipping boy. My sons aren't. They don't have someone who stands in their place. (laughs) But a whipping boy is a boy who was educated alongside a prince or a monarch, someone who was of royal blood. And this was a practice in early modern Europe. And the whipping boy would receive corporal punishment for the prince's transgression in his presence. So the idea was, oh, you know, a teacher can't whip the prince. He can't whip the young monarch who's going to be king someday. Haha, but what he can do is whip the whipping boy in front of him and say, see, this is what this person is going to get, this boy gets because of your behavior. So the prince wasn't punished himself because his royal status exceeded that of his tutor. But seeing a friend punished, seeing somebody he cared about punished, spanked or whipped, would provide an equivalent motivation not to repeat the offense. And you might be seeing where I'm going here, but the concept is that the whipping boy 
is the substitute for the one who has really done the wrong thing, the one who is really supposed to get punished. And it's not a one-for-one correlation, but there's a sense in which Christ is our whipping boy, for lack of a better term. But the crazy thing about Christ being our substitute, the one who takes our punishment in our place, is that he is the king. And we're actually the lowly whipping boy. And so the dignitary, the monarch, the king is the one who takes our place. And that is why it's called grace. It's undeserved and unearned. So let's think about this tonight in terms of Lord's Day 15 and the scripture passages that we're looking at. Our theme tonight is that the gospel, the good news, promises us that Christ bore our curse, took our place. And we're going to look at this in three parts. The first is his suffering, which correlates to the first question and answer in our Lord's Day tonight. The second is his condemnation or his judgment, we could say. And the last point is his crucifixion. The manner of his death. So let's look at this first point together, his suffering. Question and answer 37 does a great job of peeling back the veil for us, helping us to see the true nature of Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering was a holistic suffering. It was... uh, an aspect of his humiliation which correlates with the entirety of his life from birth to death. From birth to death. From the cradle to the grave, we're supposed to understand and see that as all Christ's suffering. And it does this by answering this question. What do you understand by the word suffered? That is, the word suffered In the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. That's the words that we're looking at from the Apostles' Creed tonight in the Catechism. What do we understand by the word suffered? And the answer says that during his whole life on earth, during his whole life, when I say holistic, that's what I mean. I mean whole life on earth. His whole life on earth, Christ suffered. What are we supposed to understand by that? Because typically when we think of the suffering of the servant, typically when we think of Christ's passion, his suffering, we think of, especially at the end of his life. 
crucifixion, right? But when we grasp the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who has existed in perfection throughout all eternity, who does not need anything or has no want, but has existed in perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the world began, who then came and took on flesh and lived amongst the world where he would hunger and thirst, where he would break a sweat because he's working on his dad's tables, when he would suffer, when he banged a hammer against his thumb, when he would have sicknesses like a cold and sniffle and cough. We understand what the scriptures are saying when it says that he who was rich became poor for our sake. That all of Christ's life is a suffering. But it's not a pointless suffering. It's not a suffering that is not pointed towards anything. That is simply meaningless. Christ's suffering is indwelled with meaningless, filled full with meaning, excuse me, indwelled with meaning, filled full with meaning and purpose. Because we're told that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God. Against sin. He sustained, he held, he experienced the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. I want you to think of a particular image that we have of Christ's suffering. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he is praying to the Father and he's saying, Father, if there's any way that this can be done in any other way, let this cup pass from me. And it's easy for us to look at that image of Christ praying that maybe there would be another way besides the cross. As Christ saying, I don't want to experience the pain, the excruciating pain that comes with the death of crucifixion. And don't get me wrong, death by crucifixion has got to be one of the most wicked and horrifying deaths that human beings have invented. When you die by crucifixion, they're saying, you deserve not only to die capital punishment, but you, do, you deserve to experience the most amount of excruciating pain that we can fathom can occur to someone who is in the process of dying. You don't die by wounds in your hands and your feet. You die because you suffocate, because you can't lift yourself up, hold yourself up enough to be able to breathe. It's agonizing. People would be living on crucifixion crosses For days before they died. Is that what Christ is saying? He doesn't want to experience? He'd rather there be another way? No, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying 
Lord, can this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He's saying this because he's about to experience the fullness of the wrath of God. That's the cup being poured out upon him. He's going to experience sin in its most greatest and most extreme reality. And in the midst of that, he's going to experience in the mystery of God and of salvation, a separation from his father whom he has been with since the beginning, since before the beginning of time. His suffering is sustaining in body and soul the anger of God against sin. That is the cup he wished He desired, he prayed, may be passed from him. Yet not his will, but his father's be done. He did this in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul. You see the correlation here. He had to experience the anger of God against sin in his body and soul so that we could experience the freedom from sin in body and soul. To free us from eternal condemnation, the judgment that we deserve and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Christ's suffering is a suffering of the substitute who then experiences the punishment on our behalf so that we can experience the reward, the grace, the salvation. And that's what we see when we read Luke 23. And we see Christ hanging on the cross. And we see him mocked by the rulers and by the soldiers. All of that is essentially only showing you what's on the surface. If we could look at Luke chapter 23 and peel beyond the veil into the world of the spiritual we would see the darkness of sin being poured out upon Christ, our sin. That we may be free from the punishment we deserve. So that's his suffering. Let's look at the second point, his condemnation. If we read a little bit earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we'd be able to read that Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was in the judgment seat, and he declared a judgment upon Jesus. He said, you are guilty. You are crucified. As much as Pontius Pilate, in his cowardness, cowardliness, wanted to wash his hands of what the Jews were asking him to do, he was weaseled politically into giving the Jews what they wanted in order to have a good standing with them. And because of that, he sentenced to death an innocent man. He sentenced to death an innocent man. And when we... Recite together in the words of the Apostles' Creed, the words under Pontius Pilate, 
It's easy to think that those words are there simply to give us a historical grounding. And they are there for that reason. The fact that we say together when we confess that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, we're saying that Jesus of Nazareth lived in history and time, was put before an actual ruler of the Roman Empire who was placed in Jerusalem to be the, the civil magistrate there. It's a time stamp in history. It's a historical marker. But that's not what the catechism does for us. It doesn't say, why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that we would know that Jesus lived in the time of Pontius Pilate as a historical marker so that we could know that our faith was grounded in history. Those are true. That thing, those facts are true. That's a reality. What the catechism teaches us is that the judgment that Pontius Pilate gave functioned as a comfort to us. And we read the answer, so that he, though innocent, might be condemned by a civil judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Another way that I would put this would be this, that there is a sense in which the judgment of Pontius Pilate is representative. It represents the judgment of God. The civil magistrate, Pontius Pilate, declares that Christ should be crucified for his crimes. He's innocent. And so what crimes is Christ being punished for? On the crimes Christ being punished for are our crimes, our sins. And Pontius Pilate doesn't know that his judgment is representing the judgment of God. God is saying, I am going to condemn my own son. So that you can receive a pardon. I'm going to make the king the whipping boy. So you, the lowly peasants, can be free from the punishment. Maybe if you don't understand this, you don't see this, then maybe it would help you to think about the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. The trial of Jesus. Jesus is being put forward to be crucified. They want him dead. They are calling out for him to be crucified. Crucify him, crucify him. Pontius Pilate doesn't want to do that. And there's a practice during the time of the Passover that a criminal would be set free, right? And so Pontius Pilate thinks maybe a way that I could sneak my way around this situation is to ask if they would like me to set free Jesus. And so he brings forth Barabbas. Barabbas the murderer. The one who's been insubordinate to the Roman government. 
Barabbas, the criminal, the one who's actually committed a crime, worthy, deserving of crucifixion, and Jesus, the innocent one. And he says, which one do you want me to let free, to let go? And what do they say? They say, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. As unfair and unjust as that may be, what I want you to realize is that Jesus up there, our Savior, awaiting his condemnation by Pontius Pilate so that he could go to the cross for our sins. You know what he was saying too? He was saying, give him Barabbas. Because we are Barabbas. Christ was condemned by Pontius Pilate as a judge so that we could have the comfort of knowing the one who comes to judge the living and the dead is the one who's already been judged in our place. We should have received the punishment. Christ is judged in our place. He's our substitute. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians, when he's talking about his ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, the work of reconciliation, he's saying before we used to regard people from a worldly point of view. We used to once regard Christ in this way because he was veiled in the flesh. We didn't see his glory. But we don't think of people like this any longer. Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And he says, this is the, this is the foundation for my ministry of bringing the gospel. In verse 18, he says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he says, this is what was going on at the cross. If you could peel back the veil and you could see, Luke 23 just gives you the historical details, paints the picture for you. This is what happened. But if you could peel back the veil and see what's really going on, you would see that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. That God was in Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God about this last point, his crucifixion. And this is really where our theme comes into full magnification. 
The gospel promises us that Christ bore our curse. And people may see that word curse and think, that sounds like, you know, magic or whatever it may be. If they aren't rooted in the scriptures, then they don't understand that the concept of curses and blessings and vows are important. The curse that we are under is the curse of breaking. What's called the covenant of works. We broke this through our representative, Adam. When the one commandment that they were given to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... They did not obey. We're still held accountable to the covenant of works. And the covenant of works expects perfect and perpetual obedience. But here's the reality. We can't do that anymore because we are under the curse, the fallenness of mankind that God has placed upon us for breaking the covenant. So how exactly are we going to escape from the curse? The curse which results in eternal condemnation, punishment, and hell for our sins against God. The way the catechism goes about this by talking about the words crucified in in the Apostles' Creed is it asks, is it important how Christ died? I don't know about you, but that's not a question that I typically think of. We're so rooted in our faith. We're so rooted in what we've been raised in. We don't, we don't typically think of Christ dying in any other way than by the cross. But have you ever wondered why couldn't Christ have died another way? Is it important that he was crucified instead of dying by some other form of punishment? And the answer the catechism gives is, yes, the death convinces me and us that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says that whoever dies by hanging on a tree is cursed. And this comforts us in knowing that the crucifixion was purposeful because the crucifixion tells us that Christ shouldered the curse on our behalf. He was born under the law. He kept the law perfectly. He was obedient to the covenant of works. Unlike our other representative, Adam, the second Adam was perfectly and perpetually obedient to God. If you ever wonder what being born under the law means, it means that Christ was born with an obligation to be obedient to God's law, as every other human being was, but he had the ability to be obedient. And he was. 
He kept the law. He shouldered the curse, the curse that we, that we have. And in his death, he reveals that the curse which he did not deserve was given to him so that we could receive the blessing. The blessing promised to Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to all the nations. It's significant that Christ was crucified because the gospel promises us that Christ bore our curse. He carried our curse. That God placed the curse upon him. He became the cursed one. So that we could be blessed, the blessed ones. These are weighty things to consider, to think about, to ponder. But they're weighty because they explain to us the cost of our salvation. The burden that was carried in order to give it to us. The weight that was endured in order that we may be free from the severe judgment of God. But I want us to also keep in mind that Christ didn't stay dead. That he was raised to new life. And because he was raised to new life, Our sins died with him on the cross and we've been raised to new life. And what the cross, the suffering of Jesus Christ, the condemnation that he received at the hands of Pontius Pilate and the crucifixion that he experienced should do for us, his people, should strengthen us and encourage us in the grace that we have received. Should remind us That we are called to suffer just as Christ suffered. Although we don't do so vicariously in order to benefit others. We may be judged by the world. But because Christ was judged by Pontius Pilate, we will not be judged by God. And we are called to crucify the flesh. Kill the sin that remains within us that we may live more faithfully to our Heavenly Father. All these things are, some, are, are things that should give us confidence, things that should encourage us in our walk, should strengthen us in our faith. Christ bore our curse. Christ took our place. May we live for Him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us by your grace poured out on us in Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the one who was judged, condemned, the one who was crucified, the one whom you made sin, who had no sin.
that we might become the righteousness that you have, Lord. Help us to live as servants who have been redeemed and freed, who have received your grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Help us to live as people who no longer bear the curse, but are new creations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You sing with me, Psalm.